I'm Rosemary, and I am reading scripture today. Listen to the word of God. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every boy that is born to the Hebrews, you shall throw into the Nile, but you shall let every girl live. Now a man from the house of Levi went and married a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine baby, she hid him for three months. When she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and plastered it with bitumen and pitch. And she put the child in it and placed it among the reeds on the bank of the river. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. The daughter of Pharaoh came down to the bathe at the river, and while she was bathing, her attendants walked beside the river. She saw a basket among the reeds and sent her maid to bring it. When she opened it, she saw the child. He was crying, and she took pity on him. This must be one of the Hebrews' children, she said. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and get you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Yes. So the girl went and called the child's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child and nurse it for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed it. And when the child grew up, she brought it to Pharaoh's daughter, and she took him as her son. And she named him Moses, because, she said, I drew him out of the water. One day, after Moses had grown up and he was out walking among his people, he saw their forced labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his kinfolk. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, he saw two Hebrews fighting. And he said to the one who was in the wrong, Why do you strike your fellow Hebrew? He answered, Who made you a ruler and judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, Surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh, and he settled in the land of Midian and sat down by a well. The priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came to draw water and fill the troughs with water to water their father's flock. But some of the shepherds came and drove them away, Moses got up and came to their defense and watered their flock. When they returned to their father, Ruel, he said, How is it that you've come back so soon today? They said, An Egyptian helped us against the shepherds. He even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, Well, where is he? Why did you leave the man? Invite him to break bread. Moses agreed to stay with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter, Zephora, in marriage. She bore a son, and he named him Gershom. For he said, I have been an alien residing in a foreign land. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So I was telling uh, Jerry Schoberg, who's going to be preaching some of the sermons for the Exodus series, that I was disappointed because... There's just so much in this passage. I mean, it's Moses is rescued. The, he kills an Egyptian, and then he uh, wins a woman's uh, hand in marriage based on the fact that he chases some shepherds away. 
Um, we're only going to deal with the first part of this, uh, but, you know, it's worth taking it home and meditating, meditating further uh, on the, uh, the scripture. You know, you, know, you know you're a Bible nerd when you just say, oh, man, I wish there was just more time to preach. Uh, I know that's what you're all thinking. I wish the sermons were longer. Uh, uh, let us pray. Lord, we come to you not as perfect people, not as people that reach the lofty goals and life you have set out before us, but we come to you as people knowing your forgiveness and your mercy. We come to you as people knowing that when we stumble and fall, you lift us. We pray, O Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit, you might lift us again as you lifted Moses from the water. Claim us as your own. In Jesus' name, amen. So here we are in Exodus again. This is part two, the second sermon in our series, the story of God's liberation of the Hebrews from slavery in Egypt. Last week we heard about how the Hebrews were enslaved because the Egyptians feared how numerous they were becoming. We heard about how Pharaoh, the Egyptian king, instituted brutal policies, working them to death to get them to control. And that didn't work. Pharaoh ordered the Hebrew midwives to kill each firstborn son during labor. Long story short, a couple of midwives resisted. Pharaoh was foiled, and the firstborn sons were spared. This, unfortunately, is not the end of this particularly vicious chapter in the scriptures, though, because Pharaoh resorts to what we might call the nuclear option. He orders all of his people, the whole nation, to take those firstborn male babies and throw them in the Nile River. Keep all the girls, he says, but kill all the boys in the Nile. Each and every person in this scripture has become an active against God's people. You might expect fellow Hebrews to resist, but none of it happens. The Egyptians have too much on the line to do anything else. A more recent analogy might be the 1994 Rwandan genocide when people who had once been relatively peaceful neighbors suddenly showed up on doorsteps brandishing machetes. It's a particularly dark chapter in the history of God's people. Now, a regular criticism of religion tends to be that it's kind of like wishful thinking. But there's nothing wishful here in this text. The worst thing that can happen in our lives to us or those we love is confronted head on. I mean, slavery and oppression and systematic Genocide is far from our own experience here living in North America at the wealthiest time of history, but we do see it on TV, we hear about it, and we know about it, and we're helpless before it all. And besides, we know hopelessness too, just on a smaller scale. We may not know firstborn genocide, 
hopelessness, but we do know what it's like to live in fear. We know what it's like to lose people, the worst being a child. We know what it's like to lose livelihoods. We know what it's like to make moral compromises that we would never make if given the choice. What's the worst you can possibly imagine? What's the worst thing you've ever experienced? Here, the Bible is incredibly honest. It is not wishful thinking at all. There are times where there's no great intervention in our lives, no sudden halt to terror. This is humanity at its worst. This is as dark as it gets, could very well be the end. This is not wishful thinking at all. The Bible is completely honest about the world and about human life. It's as dark as it gets. It's as dark as it gets. It's as dark as it gets. It could very well be the end. And yet, it's not the end. It's not the end at all. It may have been invisible in the thick of things as the terror is happening, but here we are given this great glimmer of hope. In the middle of all Pharaoh's reign of terror, we're told that life finds a way. A man and a woman are married and they have a baby. She's got this newborn baby boy with downy hair, tiny hands, and he's all swaddled up in her arms. And she looks at him and she sees beauty. She sees goodness. And it's not just any goodness she sees. She doesn't just see a pretty baby. It's the same word that God uses at the beginning of the world. God created it all and said that it was good, that it was very good. She looks into this baby's eyes and sees the image of God. She sees the goodness of God in this baby's face. This is what she sees, and she just can't do it. She can't go through with it. She can't give this baby up, and she hides him as long as she can. But eventually, she puts him in this basket. She waterproofs it, and she sends it out into the Nile. She tucks him into this shallow spot by the reeds, hoping somebody will take pity and care for him. Meanwhile, setting, setting her daughter Miriam to watch the boat to see what happens. They hope that somebody will take pity and care for him, and somebody does. The daughter of Pharaoh herself has her servants go fish this basket out of the water. She knows this must be a Hebrew baby. She sees the same goodness in this baby, and she too has compassion. I mean, so she takes him in and she raises him in the royal house. And I mean, the best part is that the old, older sister sees this go down and she suggests hiring the boy's mom as a nursemaid as Pharaoh's daughter adopts him as her own. And when she takes him out of the water, when she takes him into her arms, she says, I call him Moses because I drew him out of the water. And of course, if you know anything about the rest of the story... You'll know how crucial Moses is. He is the guy that's going to lead God's people out of slavery once and for all. 
It would have been hard, and it would have been impossible to see this at the time, but in the middle of all of this darkness, the rescue of Moses is a glimmer of hope. It's a glimmer of hope. It's as dark as dark gets, but it's not the end. Moses is a symbol of hope for God's people. Now, if you were here last week, you'll notice something similar this week. Last week, I pointed out that God is barely mentioned in the story when the Hebrews are taken into slavery, and it's the same thing here. In fact, if you open your Bible and read the passage that we had read out, there isn't a single mention of Moses, or sorry, there is a mention of Moses, many mentions of Moses. There isn't a single mention of God in our whole reading. Moses survives, and I mean, we could be led to think, well, that was sure was lucky, that sure was plucky. That could be a great coincidence. That's, that's wonderful that it worked out like that. It all appears to be at the human level, but it is not the case. Again, same as last week, God is hidden. Walter Brueggemann, the great Old Testament scholar, puts it like this. The story, he says, the story shrewdly conceals God in the life of Moses, where that present isn't, presence isn't explicit or visible. Quoting the great reformer John Calvin, he continues, all things which led to the preservation of Moses were disposed of by God's guidance, under God's auspices, and by the secret inspiration of God's spirit. Even though God isn't mentioned at all, God is at work under it all, in the background, making this all possible. Now, where is God work? What is God doing here? Don't get me wrong, I love the fact, and you probably love the fact too, that we all get to read the Bible in English, right? I've sort of joked that I couldn't be a mainstream Muslim because I don't have the discipline to learn the Quran in Arabic. Most Muslims know you've got to learn Arabic because so much is lost in translation. And it's the same thing here. So much is lost in translation from Hebrew to English. One thing that nearly all of the translations we have miss is when Moses' mom is preparing to float him down the Nile, most of them say that, you know, puts him in a nice little wicker basket, you know, the kind you get at Ikea. You know, you place it in there and it's good to go and float it down the Nile, but it's not quite Right. I mean, it could have been a wicker basket, not from Ikea, but it could have been a wicker basket. But the Hebrew word it uses is the same one for ark. She places, Moses' mother constructs an ark to brave the Nile's deadly waters. I mean, does that sound familiar at all to you? Way back in Genesis 6, God tells this guy Noah to build an ark, to build a big boat, fill it up with his family and a pair of every animal on earth. Why? To save them from a worldwide flood, to make a new start for humanity. In English, we are bound to miss it. But here we're told that Moses and his mother are reenacting the story of Noah in miniature. Like Noah, this ark will enable Moses to survive the waters of death and to make a new start for his people. This is where God is at work. The fact that it's not just a basket or a canoe or a bassinet, but an ark. It's there to tell us that this glimmer of hope isn't a sing, just a simple fluke. 
It's not a good lack. It's not good luck. It's not a coincidence. But it's here to tell us that the preservation of God, it is an act of God. God is at work. That in the middle of all of this death, this darkness, this violence, this death and murder, God hasn't given up on God's people. Through the rescue of Moses, God has made another ark. In Moses, God is bringing light to the darkness yet again. Again, Brueggemann, who I quoted earlier. The ark of Moses, he says, is an act of new creation. The world here begins again precisely out of the chaos that Pharaoh has decreed. Through the worst, God never gave up on God's people, and in Moses, God starts the world all over again. In the same way God brought about the universe from the chaos of a formless void, in the same way God brought Noah and his family through the raging waters of the flood, in the same way God brought barren Abraham and Sarah children, God is always bringing life out of death. And if you're a Christian, you can't help but hear Jesus too in this part of the story. In the same way Moses was lowered into the deadly Nile in a basket under Pharaoh's orders, Jesus was lowered into the realm of Hades on a cross. And in the same way Moses was drawn out by Pharaoh's daughter, Jesus was drawn out of death itself by the power of God's Spirit on the third day. Not only that, but if you're a Christian, you'll also hear echoes of baptism. As Moses was drawn out of the water of the Nile, was a sign of God's rescue, so is our being drawn out of the waters of baptism, a sign of our own. On in the service, we'll be lowering Levi into the waters of new creation. What's going on with the sound? I don't know what's going on with the sound. Am I supposed to speak into here? What am I supposed to do? What am I supposed to do? Somebody gave an answer from downstairs. I couldn't quite hear it. Speak, Lord. Your servants are listening. But we're going to be doing that with Levi. I mean, I didn't really, it didn't really occur to me until we heard the scripture again. I'm like, oh, the house of Levi. Uh, <laughs> Moses, the house of Levi. But in baptism, later in the service, we're going to be lowering Levi into the safety of the ark that is Christ's body, that is Christ himself. The rescue of Moses points towards God's ongoing pattern of salvation. Moses' work is more often than not hidden. This text provides us with a great glimpse of hope, no matter the darkness. No matter the darkness. Now, the first few months of COVID three years ago were not the same caliber or catastrophe as Egyptian slavery or genocide. This is true, but I know that for some of you, this was a truly dark time. I won't say it who it is, but I have permission to share a little bit of the story. One of you told me about your struggle with depression and anxiety, one that was moderate and occasional, but eventually was triggered 
after lockdowns and restrictions didn't look like they were going away anytime soon. Not knowing whether you'd have a job or a life or any kind of future for your kids, like life had permanently changed for the worst. Things have improved greatly, but it was the darkest time that you'd ever experienced. No future, no way out. Now, I was hoping that you would tell me that it was all my Zoom preaching, uh, all my inspiring newsletters and Zoom hangouts that had made it all better. But alas, it was somebody else. You take into listening to a few African-American preachers, which I like to think of sometimes as the real preachers um, compared to me. One particular sermon that caught your attention was on Isaiah 43, verse 2. I will be with you, and through the rivers they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. You said you didn't remember all the details. The phrase the preacher kept repeating, though, was, God makes a way out of no way. God makes a way out of no way. When you're up against the wall, God makes a way out of no way. When you're lost, God makes a way out of no way. Over and over and over again. And for those familiar with African-American preaching, you'll know how often this phrase is used. It's used as a rally cry to freedom from slavery around the American Civil War and all the way up to a proclamation of hope in a life that's fallen apart. It's a proclamation of God's sovereign love against the dead-end brick wall that is oppression, suffering, and human pain. You said that this phrase hit you like a ton of Pharaoh's bricks the first time you heard it. I added the Pharaoh part, of course. Like a weight was lifted. The depression didn't immediately disappear, but it was a ray of sunshine breaking through the dark cloud of COVID. You didn't say it this way, but you were like Moses in the ark drifting along amid that, all that destruction. You knew that somehow, on account of God, you'd make it through, that God was making a way out of no way, and that God would draw you out one day for good and put you on dry land. I mean, I'm disappointed that I wasn't the one to say it, but these words are a summary of the gospel that God makes a way out of no way. This is the promise of the gospel, dear friends. The promise is that God never gives up. 
The promise is that God is bringing about a future when the rapids look like they're about to take us over a cliff. The promise is that it may not be immediate and it may not be obvious at first, and you probably won't get through without getting at least a little bit wet, but by God, you will make it through. You will make it through. We will make it through by the hidden power and presence of God. A way will be made out of no way. In that same way, dear friends, I pray that in your darkest hour, that when the waters of death threaten to overwhelm you, I pray that God places you in that ark of salvation. I pray that in the same way he brought light to Israel's darkness, that he will bring light to your own. In the same way he lifted Moses from the waters, in the way he raised Jesus from the dead, I pray that he would raise your spirit and deliver you from all death and despair. That the salvation we have received secondhand from the scriptures becomes for each of you a firsthand hope. I pray that this may be so. And I offer it to you in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.
Dear friends, please remain standing as we put our hearts to the hope that God has given us by reciting the ancient Apostles' Creed together. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, 